Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB and social broadcasts, this is Transmitter, bringing you original sounds, new voices and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio and I'll be scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. The next hour is dedicated to stories. Tall tales, true tales and something in between tales. Radio has been, since its introduction into the family home or as an accompaniment on long car journeys and now through the earbuds of a smartphone, the perfect medium for the spinning of yarns. We'll hear four stories all excellently written or adapted by their narrator, two from folklore and two that take us on an augmented reality. Let's start with a folktale adapted and narrated by Sarah Lisa Wilkinson for the podcast The Embers. The Embers Collective are a group of storytellers and musicians who bring stories into a live setting. Their podcast combines old myths, funky folklore and original stories all accompanied by live music. So in the tradition of the Christmas spooky story, This is the rather disturbing and dark tale of the devil's violin. So there was this girl, and she was a bit strange. She was a kind of girl who was always on the edge of things, never in the middle, always lurking about on the edge. That's where she was right now, standing on the edge of her village square, staring at this man not blinking because that is how much she liked him she liked him a lot she'd liked him for ages she thought he was the best man in the village he had the best hair objectively it hung in perfect curls and swirls around his face He had the best eyes. They gleamed like green glass. The best nose, the best words came out of his face. And every time she saw him, her whole body tingled with pleasure. But the man wasn't bothered. Even though the girl spent quite a lot of her time trying to engineer herself directly into his eyeline, he never saw her. He didn't notice her. And so the girl thought, I must do something about this dynamic. And so she went into the forest because she'd heard that can help. And she got on her knees and she tilted her face up to the sky and she chanted those old words, those ancient powerful songs. So as the moon rolls away from its mother and returns, let this man turn to me. So as a pine needle brushes up against another in a pine tree, let this man brush up against me. So as a flower opens its petals to the sun, let this man open himself to me. And then she got up and she went out of the forest to see if it had worked. And it hadn't. And so she went back in. She got on her knees again. And she cried. She beat her breast with her fists. She sobbed and screamed. She scratched into that forest floor with her nails, past the topsoil, past the middle soil, past that dark, rich bottom soil, deeper and deeper and deeper and to oh! She got to the devil. All cosy in a little hollow in the ground 
And the devil looked up and he saw the girl's fingers beckoning and he reached his hands to hers and landed lightly beside her, brushing the earth of his smart black suit, pricking up his horns. And then the devil looked at the girl and he said, hmm, what do you want? And the girl looked at the devil and she said, you know what I want. And the devil said, sure, but what will you do? And the girl looked at the devil and said, I will do anything. And then the devil smiled and he said, well, that is music to my ears. Go home and bring me back the thing that gives you the most joy. And so the girl went home. She went into her house and she looked at all the stuff that was in it. You know, the chairs and the tables and the ornaments, little bits of brick and brack, but none of it really gave her any joy. She thought, why? Why do we have all this stuff if it doesn't bring us joy? And then she heard this chuckle. And when she turned around, she saw her father his great broad back and shoulders shaking with mirth, probably laughing at one of his own jokes. And she said, Father, you give me the most joy. Oh. Will you come with me into the forest? And the father took his daughter's hand and he walked with her through the trees until they got to the devil and the devil smiled and clicked his fingers. And the girl's father was gone. All that was left of him were the bones of his torso and just a little bit of his neck. And the devil took those bones and he sculpted them into a hollow box that went in and out and then he varnished it and he polished it and the girl said, oh, father's bones have never shone so bright and then the devil said do you still want this man and the girl said I do then go home and bring me the thing that gives you the most strength and the girl ran home and as soon as she stepped into the yard of her house she saw her mother drawing up water from the well and the girl said mother You give me the most strength. Come with me into the forest. And the mother took her daughter's hand and they ran through the trees towards the devil. He smiled and clicked his fingers. And the girl's mother was gone. All that was left of her were the bones of her spine and her long grey silvery hair. And the devil took them and he stretched them into a long gleaming bow. And the girl said, oh. My mother's bones have never danced so light. And the devil looked at the girl and he said, Do you still want this man? And the girl said, I do. Then go home and bring what gives you the most hope and the most despair. And she raced home. And as soon as she got there, she saw them right away. Her little brother and sister playing together, pinching and poking each other. And she said, Oh, it is you. Definitely, you give me the most hope and the most despair. Come with me into the forest. She took their hands. They ran together. The devil laughed, clicked his fingers twice, and her brother and sister were gone. All that was left of them were their guts and their tongues. And the devil stretched them as strings over that hollow box of bone and they tinged and they pinged and the girl said oh my brothers and sisters voices have never sounded so sweet and then the devil took that strange instrument and he put it underneath the girl's chin he put the bow in her hand and he said now play and the girl brought the bow down upon the strings and because it doesn't matter who you are or what your violin's made of the first time you try and play it it sounds disgusting but the devil instructed her and say what you like about the devil and a lot of people do he is an excellent teacher And the girl worked, 
You know, she practiced really hard. She was committed, or should have been committed. She rehearsed until the bones in her arms ached, until the tips of her fingers were split with red blood. She was so focused on what she was doing, she almost forgot what she was doing it for, and spring became summer, became autumn, became winter, became spring again, and then... Oh, she was playing so sweet and light that the branches of the trees bent in closer to hear her, that the birds paused mid-song in the air, that the butterflies fluttered their wings as quietly as they could so they didn't miss a note. And she took that music out of the forest and into the village. And when the people heard that sound, you know, full of joy and strength and hope and despair, they left their jobs, they left their kids, they poured out of their houses, and when she played fast, they danced shaking their limbs loose. And when she played slow, they stood in trance, tears slipping down their cheeks. They threw gold and silver and the clothes off their own backs. And that man, that man who hadn't noticed her before, he noticed her now. He noticed her all the way home. He noticed her as she wrapped that violin in a silken cloth, put it in a case and fastened the clasp. He noticed her as she walked towards him gold and silver falling from her hands and said everything that I have can be yours my house my wealth myself because I think you are the best man in the village and then she lifted her lips to his but just before they met she said but not my violin don't touch my violin And then they kissed. And then they made love. And then they lay together in bed, in each other's arms, and the girl ran her fingers through that man's curling, swirling hair, and she drifted off to dreams, her body tingling with pleasure. But the man couldn't sleep. You know what it's like when you're in a strange bed after you've just made love to a strange girl. And so he slipped out of the bed and he walked out of the room. And there, lying on the floor, illuminated by a shaft of moonlight from the window, almost like it was doing it on purpose, was a violin in its case. Don't touch the violin. I'm not, thought the man. I'm just looking at the case. He unfastened the clasp. Don't touch the violin. I am not. I'm merely unfastening the clasps. He unfolded the silken cloth. Don't touch the violin. I am not. I am just unfolding this silken cloth. He picked up the violin. Okay, yes. I am now, in fact, touching the violin, but... I'm not going to play it because I am not stupid. And he didn't. But he pretended. He struck a pose. He skimmed the bow in the air above the strings and he imagined those people in front of him. Dancing, laughing, weeping, cheering and chanting his name. Oh my God, it was intoxicating. He could almost hear their voices. Father's bones. Whispering. Mother's bones. Whispering. Brothers and sisters, guts and tongues. Whispering. Father's bones. Mother's bones. Brothers and sisters, guts and tongues. Father's bones, mother's bones, brothers and sisters, guts and tongues. Father's bones, mother's bones, brothers and sisters, guts and tongues. And a drop of blood fell from the bow onto the man's fingers and another drop spilled onto the collar of his shirt and he quickly went and he wrapped the violin back in the cloth. He put it in the case, he fastened the cloth and he ran to the bathroom and he scrubbed 
at the blood on his fingers and he scrubbed at the blood on his shirt but that kind of blood just does not come out even though he scrubbed and he scrubbed until the sun rose the next morning and what are you doing? The girl stood in the doorway all sleepy and smiley but when she saw the blood staining the man her smile froze as he backed away from her turning pale and he said you are a monster you are a murderer you are the devil's child and the girl said oh I'm so sorry that that is how you are choosing to look at it that is such a shame do you know what that is really disappointing because I thought you were the best man in the village and you don't understand at all and the man said I will tell the village I will tell everyone who you are and what you have done and he pushed past her and he ran out of the house and the girl cried one tear because that was all she had left in her and then she went and got the violin out of the case she polished the body, she resined the bow, she tuned the strings and she walked out of her house and she played. Sweet and soft to start with, you know, little notes that just dusted the air and the people stepped out of their houses smiling. And then she played smooth, round tones that made the people sway on their feet where they stood. And then she started playing so fierce and fast and bright, her fingers like quicksilver on the strings, that the people just stood transfixed in awe. Until the man turned up. He barged through the people in the village square. He went up to the girl. He grabbed the bow from her hand and the music stopped. And the man turned to the people and he told them what he had seen, what he had found out, how the girl had come by that violin and all of the people stared at the man and then all of the people stared at the girl and then all of the people turned to the man she said oh dear well now look what you've done you've upset everyone what am I going to do with you and then she smiled and she looked just past the man's shoulder and when the man turned he saw that there was another man standing really close to him in a very smart black suit with intense burning eyes and little horns and the girl said oh yes now that's a good idea click She bent down and picked up her bow from where it had fallen to the ground. She put the violin back underneath her chin, but now, just past where her fingers held the neck, there was this wooden scroll carved in a perfect curl. And she brought the bow back down upon the strings and the music swirled around the people in the village square and they started to move and dance and cheer and chant as the girl played on and the girl played on and the girl played on that was the devil's violin adapted and narrated by sarah lisa wilkinson with musical accompaniment by tim Carp. If you want to learn more about the story and hear more like it, search for The Embers Podcast. And in this episode, number 24, Sarah Lisa discusses the meaning and moral behind the story you've just heard. Now for something with no particular story arc, no obvious heroes or moral challenges. This is pure prosaic description. Taking us back to a bygone era to Burslem in Stoke-on-Trent, somewhere between the 1950s and 60s. 
I discovered this work when I was recording a radio piece I was making about Stoke's six towns. I came across the BBC Radio Stoke archives at the local library and discovered the work of local radio producer and oral historian Arthur Wood, who also worked for many years with local playwright, poet and artist Arthur Berry. The two authors recorded an anthology of descriptive prose about life and places in Stoke-on-Trent at the time of imminent transformation. Sometimes compared to Dylan Thomas's Under Milkwood, this wonderful piece of prose is a perfect portrait in words of a scene that spectacularly brings local characters to life. This is the lament for the last pubs of Burslem, written and narrated by Arthur Berry. I sat down and wept when I remembered the lost pubs of Burslem, the demolished star that stood where the moon globe ballroom stands now, on the corner of the street of the preacher and the toad office. It was a gaunt, dark building nicknamed the Star of Bethlehem, a grimy, stuccoed star, the colour of years of wet smoke. From outside it looked forbidding and empty, lit only by one or two naked electric light bulbs. Its doors were difficult to find. Its main door on the corner of the square had been screwed down for some reason and on the inside covered with a sheet of painted plywood. Only the side doors would let you in, and these were narrow and difficult to open. One was in Queen Street, and the other down William Clowes Street, opposite the Dolphin. Behind the blocked-up main door was a weighing machine that didn't work, that stood in a passage that led to the closed smoke rooms. For all its dreary appearance, the star was the highest drinking temple in the town. Nothing has been the same since it was knocked down. No pub has been more lamented. It was a place filled with snugs, and in these snugs there were little stoves, each with a bucket of coal and a shovel. These snugs were the haunt of guinea-drinking old women who sat night after night squat as frogs, drinking, watching and eating and taking all in. There was one, I remember, a Mrs. Potts, God rest her soul. She never stopped eating pork sandwiches all the days of her life, and her great chops must have chommeled herds of pigs down. I do not think her stomach had been empty for half a century or more. She sat there night after night, filling her face with roast pork and guineas. I heard one man say that she would have eaten a bat in a straw or a raw monkey if it would have stood still. But she knew what her pleasures were, and where they were, and she attended to them every night in the snug of the star. These snugs were often called paring pens. Gossip had it that certain publicans, for a consideration, would lock one and turn the other way while the lascivious occupants attended to their carnal pleasures. I did not see this myself, but I was an innocent at the time and wouldn't have understood it if I had. Behind these small cubicles was the big main tap room, a wooden-floored L-shaped bar with cane bottom seats around the wall and a few little heavy iron-legged tables. These tables had been wiped with damp cloths so often that they were stripped bare of varnish, and the main bar was the same, raw, wet wood covered with damp beer mats. There were spittoons round the bar on the floor and an old rosewood piano in the corner, and once there had been a big stove pot, but even in those days that had been ripped out and replaced by a little pitiful but convenient heating arrangement. How terrible has been the loss of these stove pots, these magnificent dark stoves that were once the heart of every tap room, elegant black shapes that stood there with such dignity like totems. To sit against one of these on a winter night and feel the rich heat and watch the clear amber beer was a benediction. Men would come early doors to get a seat on one of the wooden forms against it. To watch a publican's dog lying asleep in front of one of these stoves was to watch luxury. 
The loss of these stoves was a great blow. Men have watched fire for millions of years. To give a form like a stove to hold the fire was a perfect blending between nature and art. And to watch a publican lift the top and put a shovel of coke on was to watch a high priest attend to a ritual of life. To go into, say, the sea lion in Waterloo Road and to get in early when the place was fresh mopped and the new beer mats were laid out on the tables and the ashtrays were clean and the stove was crackling with fresh coke and the red quarries were gleaming and the bar pumps were shining and the dominoes and the cards were waiting and the publican had got a clean collar and tie on and all the world was shipshape. This was happiness, or at least as near to it as I've ever come. And what could be nicer, fresher, than the smell of a newly whitewashed gentleman's? I have patronized public houses because the gentleman smelt so fresh. But then, I have patronized pubs for very strange reasons. I used to use the Black Lion because it had two brass bars across the door. Burslem was filled with pubs in them days, one every few yards. The Rose, the Shamrock, the Thistle, the Waterloo Stores, Norris's Wine Vaults, the New Vaults, the Albion, the Mason's Arms, the Duramox, the Hole in the Wall, the Jig Post. Gone, gone, gone every one. I remember the rose, the shamrock and the thistle had a three-cornered tap room. I once saw a pot woman dance an impromptu fertility dance in there. There were low-life pubs with shilling women standing holding half-pints in dark passages, and there were respectable pubs where publicans would sit with wing-collared councillors, and there were pubs where the wing-collared councillors would meet the shilling women, with sometimes disastrous results to hearth and home. The Jig Post was such a place. Just think of the name, The Jig Post. What the very sounds it conjures up, I don't think. I met my lady in the jig post, a man three parts drunk said to me, his cap pulled too far over his eye. He had difficulty in focusing at the time, but he repeated it again and again. I met my lady in the jig post. He seemed proud of it, God knows why. The woman sitting with him had knees the size of hams and drank a case of bottle beer as she sat there. I should have thought he'd have been better off leaving her in the jig post, but there's no accounting for taste. In the world of public houses there are many mansions and many hovels and many and various are the customers who attend to these temples, from the ordinary husband and father that can manage a couple of pints at the weekend to men that are sodden in it, men who are waiting for opening time every day, who only leave when the ash trees have been emptied at night. And then there are the princes of drink, men high in the hierarchy of booze, popes of the taproom, there are not many of these men of quality. Do not confuse them with characters. They are much more than that. Every pub hasn't got one. Some pubs wouldn't recognize one if they saw him. But when a pub has got a drinking man of this caliber, they'll soon know, for where he sits, other men come. And soon a drinking school is set up. These high mafiosos have usually reared their families and finished with work long ago, if they ever did any in the first place. It is below the dignity of such men to be employed, and somehow or other they manage to live, and live with style. I mean to smoke, and to drink, and to back horses, without ever seeming to concern themselves about money. These men have attended the University of the Street Corner, and are professors in the life of the streets. They sit steady, and watch all, and at first say nothing. But then they judge, and their judgment of a man or a publican is deadly and final. Other, more ordinary men, who cannot make ends meet and are under the rule of women, look on these paragons with wonder. These popes of the taproom are rarely seen the worse for drink, but that is perhaps understandable, as they have had a lifetime's practice and have become immune. As one of them said to me once, when I can't drink no more, I've told them, pour it all over me and let it soak in. To watch a man of this quality come in at the taproom and watch him survey the scene at a glance, Watch him order his drink, pay his coins for it, and then watch him make his way to his usual seat, nod his greetings to the company. Good evening, Colonel. They'll all greet him, and he'll nod at this and smile, and then perhaps salute back. Good evening, Adjutant, he'll reply. To watch this is to be present at a moment that makes a memory, and to savour the full richness of working class who can live without work. 
It is no wonder that lesser men, men who are pestered by women and children, whooping cough and rashes of one sort or another, sit agog with wonder at the doings of these cardinals of the taproom, who look and listen and have seen and heard it all before, and who have learned the proper value to place on things. Troubles that seem baffling and hopeless and endless, troubles that reduce an honest man to a worrying machine, have no account with them. They can dismiss them without a moment's attention. All the belly aching and mither and half-bite scrimping that bogs most men down never touches them. They will have none of it. They have seen it all before down the streets they have lived in, the poverty and the poverty of just having enough, just being able to make ends meet. They have found an escape from this early. These drinking popes always understood that they must keep their dignity at all costs. And bosses and women and children pull men down from the dignity, and they would not be pulled down in this way. For they are gentlemen, and treat themselves as gentlemen, and the first need of a gentleman is to be independent. And somehow they manage it. I have known such men rear big families on the dole, and strut up and down the street with a rose in their buttonhole. This is saying yes to life, and these men have always done that. They are not Bolsheviks, not reformers in any way. They have defeated their circumstances by wit and character, and understand it is not for all men. Other men could not manage it. They are the centre of their own worlds. Publicans look worried for some reason if they are absent for a single night. What if they should have found another pub? Tragedy of tragedies. It is unthinkable. When such men as this die, there should be a moment's silence. Then there should be an extension the same night, and the president of the licensed victuallers should read a funeral oration in the smoke room, and the tap room should be garlanded with garlands made from empty fag packets and wet beer mats, because, make no mistake, this is a serious thing, a holy thing, when a man of such quality passes on. I once remember the death of such a man, powerful in the world of drinking. He was sitting in his usual place in the tap room, with not a hair out of place, drinking and emptying his jug at the usual pace, surrounded by his convivial admiring friends, when he got up to answer a call of nature and took himself off to the urinal. And the night went on in the usual way, the noise of the arguments of the card players mingled with the noise of the fall of dominoes and the idle banter from the bar. A half an hour passed, and one man mentioned that Purse had been a long time. He must have got stuck. No one thought any more about it until it was getting near closing time. Then someone thought they'd better go to look for him. And then they found him sitting there, straight up as large as life with his cap on and his trousers down, dead on the lavatory, as dead as he'd ever be. What a way for a man to go, in the full flesh of his drinking life. No better death could be wished for any man. The fates had given Purse his proper due, perhaps a little short on dignity at the very end, but what of it, he'll never know. And I have noticed myself that men of the aristocracy of drink are never touched by the ills that plague most of us from time to time. Colds, influenza, nervous disorders, all that kind of ailment. They seem free from it. Perhaps it is the alcohol in their system that gives them immunity. It is only death, total and final, that is strong enough to stop their tap. And good luck to them. Life is richer for their being there. The sad thing is they seem to be fading away, like old soldiers. It is no doubt the welfare state and all its benefits that is responsible. Mind you, they have tapped these benefits while they could, none better at it. I have heard them sing, bless this house, as they have passed the social security offices. It is nevertheless seeing them into history, and we shall never see their like again. For these men were the real heroes of the time of poverty, men that came through hard times with dignity, working class men who managed to avoid work and emerge with style, armed only with their native wit and some low cunning. Oh, to imagine all the lost pubs of Burslem open again, and all the tap rooms full, and all the smoke rooms singing, the Colosseum and the palace pulling them in, the queues all the way up Queen Street, and all these great popes of the tap room alive again, and sitting in their proper places like Egyptians with their best caps on. Such a night would be filled with its own tinkling music, the old songs would be sung again, the black sheep of old would come back to the fold, and all the gold mines in the sky would be glittering, 
far away, far away among the wreaths of fag smoke, and all would be holy, holy, holy as any part of heaven. Amen. That was the lament for the last pubs of Burslem, written and narrated by Arthur Berry. If you want to hear more by Arthur Berry or Arthur Wood, head to the online archive collection www.revealing-voices.org. Now, let's travel further afield to Kampala in Uganda, where local writer and narrator Masembe blurs fact and fiction with her tales from Punishment Island, an island on Lake Banyoni, where up until the 1930s or 40s, unmarried pregnant girls were left to die. Her fictional character, Naka, shares her story and those of others from around Uganda. In this episode, A History of Punishments, we hear Jaja's tale, a grandmother's experience of Punishment Island. In my family, women must never sing. If they do, they die. It's like a malediction. Hafala, Flora Gomez. Maudaj Taragabirwe's estimated age is about 94 years. She's believed to be the only surviving woman in Chigezi sub-region. Among those who were punished, like was the custom then for getting pregnant outside wedlock. She was confined for about four days on a company island on Lake Bunyonyi. Chitaragabirwe is now partly blind with just one eye functioning fairly well. The resident of Kashunjira village says her parents decided she should be separated from the rest of the family. Episode 4, A History in Punishments Chaja, Grandmother When I was younger, I met this young Uganda man. He was a little older than me, and his family traveled around the villages telling stories and all oddities for money. When they came through my village, it was during one of those colder, rainy season times, when all sense leaves one and the cold controls the hormones. You get what I mean. I can remember the excitement as the traveling troupe performed for the village. It was a highlight for all of us because barely anything happened there. There was a huge bonfire made in the village center, got roasting and quetted drinking being passed around as we all listened to the different stories that were being told to us from the travelers. The younger girls were all stolen glances and giggling every time one of the men from the troupe looked their way. I blame the weather and that excitement for the mischief I got into later on. On the night before they left the village, we had a brief interlude, the Muganda boy and I. I had to sneak back to my parents' house in the late hours of the night. This house, in fact. You see, no proper Muchiga family would like it if their daughter was seen with a boy, especially a roaming Muganda boy at that. When the morning sickness started, I brushed it off because some sort of community illness was also going through the village. I didn't start worrying until I missed my period. And even then I hoped it was some sort of fluke. When I started showing months later, my family mistook it all as me becoming a woman, growing into my body as an adolescent. But when the bump became prominent, I couldn't hide it any longer. My father was furious. My mother kept crying and praying repeatedly. When they found out that it was by that lanky Muganda boy who had come through the village months ago, it was the last straw for them. They then decided to follow the village protocols and traditions. The whole village gathered by the shore as my father rode the small boat away with me in it. I can still remember my mother wailing loudly, like I had just been killed in front of her. And to be fair, what they had sentenced me to was actual death, so in a way it was a fitting reaction. My father looked as grim as I had ever seen him. He didn't say a single word to me the whole boat ride to the island. I don't think I would have mustered up anything to say to him, to be honest with you. I was that terrified. The island was roughly an hour or so by canoe from the village, but it was all a blur to me. I had seen other girls who had gotten pregnant out of wedlock on this very same journey that I was undertaking, and I had never thought that the day would come when it was me. 
The island was a deserted, haunted-looking entity on the water. It had those very same two trees in the middle of it. The only difference is that the trees weren't as dead-looking as they look these days. It had an eerie, gloomy kind of beauty to it, too. Well then, get off. My father's voice got me out of my stupor. We had arrived at the island. When I didn't budge, he prodded me painfully with the oars, and I stumbled onto the grass of the island. He quickly rolled away, as if he was escaping some sort of unseen enemies. It was said that the island was haunted with the ghosts of the women who had been unfortunate enough to be banished there. If any men set foot onto the soil of the island, they would die instantly. That was why my father got out of there the minute he could. I lay there for what felt like forever, sobbing my heart out. When it got darker, the cold and wetness of my clothes became a more immediate concern. Shivering all over, I decided to walk further into the island. I figured it would be a quick walk seeing as how the island is a small patch on the water. Maybe I would find some fruit, maybe some guavas, stuff like that, something to keep me alive for however long I could last there. I started hearing faint singing ahead as I walked further inland. At first I mistakenly took it for the wind, but as I kept walking, I could hear what sounded like a chorus of women singing. When this fact registered, I froze where I was standing. A thousand questions flashed in my mind, but one thing was certain. I wasn't alone there. You've seen the island, right? There are two trees almost in the center of it. From afar it looks like all you have to do is walk a few steps and you are at the trees. But I realized that I had walked quite a distance before reaching them. When I saw the two trees ahead of me, there was a glow emanating from them, and it occurred to me that the singing was coming from the same direction they were in. As I neared the trees, the singing got even louder. It had this, this hypnotic, captivating lure to it. I didn't realize I had started moving towards it, until I felt the rough, textured bark of one of the trees under my palms. I also realized that the tree surface was lined with fireflies, and as my hands went over it, some got displaced. It was a beautiful sight to behold. My concentration fully on the fireflies, the singing had been pushed to the back of my mind. That is, until movement at the corner of my eye snapped me out of it. I turned around and was startled to see a large gathering of women, all in white around me. The quiet, haunting singing was coming from them. It occurred to me briefly in that moment that this whole incident could be a hunger or shock-fueled hallucination, but it all felt so realistic. The singing, the fireflies now flying around the women and I, it was all so beautiful and it moved me to tears. It felt like that tiny island and its other wild inhabitants were embracing me into their fold. All of my prior fears of the horror that was awaiting me when my father had left me on the island dissipated. All I felt was protected and loved. Somehow I knew that I would be fine. There are things that I'm not allowed to share about my time on the island. I have met some other survivors, those who managed to return from the island like me. We all came to a decision not to divulge much of what happened there. Because we felt that going into specifics of what we experienced during our time there felt like sacrilege or some sort of betrayal. This is how I got off the island though. It felt like I lived multiple lifetimes there. And then suddenly one day, I woke up and realized that I was lying by the edge of the island where my father had dropped me off. The realization was a painful shock to me. Had the island rejected me? Was I not worthy of joining my island predecessors? The devastating loss was threatening to overwhelm me in that moment. To my utter surprise, before I could give in to all of the emotions, I saw a small boat banking by the island shore. Inside the boat was a skinny lanky figure. It was that Muganda boy. Later I would find out that he had felt a certain call to come back to my village and see me. He had been having these strange haunting dreams too for some days, so he had set out to find me. When he had got into the village, my father had tried to beat him up and so he had run away. None of the other villagers would tell him where I was either. Later on, my mother had snuck out to see him and let him know where I was. He had then hired a boat and had come to rescue me. I'm not so sure I needed any rescuing, but I came to the conclusion that it had been the will of the island. I think it was in my destiny or my final place of rest there. 
That's how your grandfather and I got together. We moved to a nearby island and settled there. We had your mother and your aunt. And then when my parents died, we moved back into this house. It is a good spot. It overlooks a punishment island. And the sight of it always brings me comfort. Whenever I see fireflies over the water and look over the island, it's like I'm transported back to my time there. Do you know who was in my belly at that time on the island? It was your mother, Naka. It's why she couldn't stand life on the mainland. She was a product of the island. Life was given to her there. Without that protection I got while I was there, I'm not sure I would have lasted all those days while pregnant with her. I believe that is why you're also touched by something other. I have seen it, your aunt has too. Your mother also had it. That is why she tried to go back there by herself. It's so unfortunate that she drowned before going there. Maybe the island would have taken her back. I'm not sure. It's something I've always wondered about though. I think it's why your aunt also insists on all of that church stuff for you. Personally, I think it's all a bit much what she does. But she hopes that maybe it will be your saving. That was an episode from Punishment Island, written and narrated by Mazembe. For more episodes, just search for Punishment Island podcast. For our final story, we head back to the land of folklore and fairy tales, and more specifically to Ireland, where actor Kevin C. Olihan takes on the role of a fireside bard and skillfully spins us a yarn by the light of the flames. In this tale, the power of music is present again, when a blind piper plays a highly addictive ditty and ends up in deep water. This is the wonderful tune. The Wonderful Tune Once upon a time, at the foot of the Wicklow Mountains, lived the greatest illen piper in all of Ireland. Like the vast majority of illen pipers, and harpists for that matter, our piper was blind. But fortunately, he had his loving Irish mammy by his side to guide him from town to town and gig to gig. Now it should be said that it is not for any great amount of skill that this piper was so well-renowned. He certainly was incredibly skilled at playing his instrument, but so were others around Ireland. What made this piper the best was his memory. He could remember and play absolutely any tune upon one hearing only. He was guided around the entire country by his mother, collecting a repertoire of tunes to beat any other musician in the world. But there was a legend of a travelling piper who could play a tune that was objectively the greatest of all time. But he never played it, and refused to teach it to anyone. Long had the blind piper and his mother heard of this legendary musician, but they never encountered him. But one day, as the piper and his mother were trekking down to Kerry, they passed an old man sitting at the side of the road by a campfire. I smell fire, mammy said the piper. A right juice you are, replied the mother. Whatever would I do without you? They both approached the old man. Pardon me, sir, said the mother. Could we sit by your fire and possibly have a bit of grub? Of course you can, said the old man. I've been expecting you. You have, said the mother. How? I am very famous, said the piper. Shut up, you, replied the mother. No, no, he's right, said the old man. Word of your son's musical achievements has reached even my old ears. So sit down, both of you. I have a proposition for you. They both sat. The mother began. Is this about a booking for a gig? Because I have to take... It's not about a bloody gig, interrupted the old man. I am the travelling piper. And not just any travelling piper. The travelling piper. As in the piper who can... As in the piper who can play the wonderful tune. That's right. This silenced both the young piper and his mother. The old man went on. As I said, word has reached my ears of your skill, young man. And if you've heard of me, you'll know that I never teach the wonderful tune to anyone. But the stories of how you can play any piece of music upon one hearing only intrigues me. 
Perhaps you can be the one to carry on the legacy of the wonderful tune. So I'm willing to propose a challenge. I will play the wonderful tune once, and once only. And you must learn it from only that hearing, and immediately play it back to me. But be warned, the wonderful tune is perfect, note for note. And if you even play one note off perfection, the tune will be useless to you, and you will be cursed to never know true illin piping glory. The mother turned to her son, and son to mother. The young piper said, Let us pipe. The old man took out his pipes, and the young piper his. The second the old man started to play, the mother leapt to her feet and started dancing, almost involuntarily. The young piper listened attentively until he felt his own feet start to tap. He attempted to resist, but the tune was just too good. When the old man finished playing, he smiled a smug smile, certain that the young piper had been too distracted by the power of the tune to possibly be listening to it. But the young man exhaled, wiped the sweat from his forehead, sat down with his own illin pipes and began to play. The smug smile on the old man's face began to slowly fade as he felt his feet begin to move. He had known this tune for years, but had never felt its power himself. The mother, meanwhile, was still dancing too. The young piper finished. Unable to see what had happened, he asked, Was that it? It was indeed, said the old man. And once he said that, the fire went out and the old man vanished. What happened, Mammy? Your man just disappeared. That was a bit rude, wasn't it? Shut up, you. Now come on, we've got a gig to get to. The pair didn't have to travel far before they reached their destination, a picturesque little village on the coast of Kerry. Their venue for the night was the most popular pub in the village. They arrived and the piper prepared to play. He couldn't wait to try out his new tune, unaware as he was of its true power. His mother had not told him what had happened, only seen the prospect of more fame, glory and gigs for her son once he played the tune even once. The young piper began to play, and of course, as soon as he did, every man, woman and child in that pub stopped what they were doing and began to dance. Once the wonderful tune had ended, the crowd erupted into applause. The village dance master approached the piper and said, That was the best tune I have ever heard. Can I buy you a drink? I wouldn't say no, was the reply, for apparently no piper or schoolteacher ever refused to drink. What'll you have? Anything that isn't plain water would be grand. Have you any whiskey? Have I any? I have a bottle of the finest whiskey in the world. Unfortunately, I've no glass. Ah, that's grand. The whiskey's what's important. And with that, the young man grabbed the whiskey and sculled the entire bottle. He then handed the dance master back the empty bottle. You are not wrong. Mmm, that is the finest whiskey I have ever tasted. The dance master was outraged. You absolute devil! You didn't have to drink the whole thing. I've been saving that bottle for 27 years. I never even got to taste it myself. Well, first of all, there's no need for that kind of language. And you must excuse me. I, I think I need to sit down. There are not many people who could down an entire bottle of whiskey and stay standing. And the young piper certainly wasn't one of them. He stumbled back over to his seat and scooped up his Ellen pipes. For although when the majority of us are in the grips of inebriation, we go looking for love, a fight, or a bin to puke in, the musician will always go looking for his instrument, and also the other three. Usually the effects of alcohol would impair the musician's skill, but for whatever reason, this particular bottle of Ishka Baha gave the piper Dutch courage like no other. He began to play the greatest version of the greatest tune that had ever been heard. The whole room started to dance uncontrollably once more, but the impact of the tune extended further than that. All around the village, people arose from their beds. Even thieves and robbers halted their illegal activities to have a bop to this absolute banger. Most unusually of all, at the seashore, fish leapt out of the sea and started to have a boogie as well. To their death, one would assume. 
But from among those dancing fish rose a beautiful woman of the sea, a divine marrow, with green hair and wearing a dress of foam white with translucent skin. The marrow made her way through the village to the very pub the music was emanating from. She walked through the crowd right up to the young piper and said to him, That is the most beautiful music I have ever heard, and I'd like you to come and live with me in the ocean and to become my husband. The piper, while still playing, said, You're drunk again, Mammy. What did we say about this? The marrow realized the piper was blind and said, I am not your mother, young piper. I could tell you what I am, but I think it would be better if you felt it. The marrow leaned over and kissed the piper and he kissed her wet, salty lips and felt her seaweed-green hair brush his face, and he knew exactly what she was. It is not every day that a blind Illen Piper is propositioned by a marrow, but still the young Piper was reluctant. I would love to come and live with you, but if I can't even see on land, I wouldn't have a whole heap of luck breathing underwater. The marrow smiled. Fear not, my new beloved. For I am a princess, and my father is king of the Irish Sea, which is the best sea, and he will give you gills to breathe with, and fish eyes to see, so that you may live and see under the sea. See, see, do you get it? Oh, no, no, I get it. Say no more. At no point in the preceding conversation did the young piper ever stop playing that wonderful tune. The gig is the gig, and the gig must go on. Always. But when the piper's mother saw what was happening, she was absolutely horrified. She thought to herself, Ah, my son can't marry her. He's only just met her. Also, she's weird-looking. And a fish. Am I to have a hake or a cod for a grandchild? Should it come that one day, on the boil, with salt and butter, I could end up eating my own grandchild? Unfortunately for the mother, as much as she wanted to go over and put a stop to this coupling, she just couldn't stop dancing. She tried calling to her son, pleading him not to leave her after all that she had done for him, caring for him his entire life. But the young piper was hooked. He turned to her on his way out. Sorry, Mammy, but I'm in love. I'll never be able to thank you for all you've done for me, but I should have gone off on my own a long time ago, but I couldn't because I was dependent on you for your eyes. Now I have a chance at both sight and love. I don't know which I thought was more impossible. Now both are a reality. I have to take this chance. But I promise that on this day, every single year, I will send a piece of burnt wood to the seashore of this village so that you will know I am alive, well, and happy. And with that, the young piper let the marrow lead him to the ocean. Knowing well his mother would physically stop him if she could, he never stopped playing that tune until he was submerged underwater and it was too late. Though the exact date has been long lost, to this day the young piper still sends a burnt piece of wood to the water's surface for his mother to find. Why, he didn't send her something nice or practical like shoes or jewellery or sea shoes or sea jewellery, no one can say, but he kept his word nonetheless. Tragically, though, the poor piper's mother wouldn't live to see even one of those useless pieces of burnt wood, for she died not three weeks later. Some say it was the heartbreak. Most say it was the sheer exhaustion from so much dancing. And as for the wonderful tune, it was never played again, and won't be, until that piper returns from the sea to pass it on to another extraordinary young musician. The End That was the wonderful tune adapted and narrated by Kevin C. Olihan from episode three of his podcast, Fireside. If you want to hear more about where this story came from and delve deeper into Irish folk tales, search for Fireside wherever you get your podcasts. And a new story narrated and explained by Kevin C. Olihan drops every Wednesday. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio. You've been listening to Transmitter, 
a social broadcast production. All the details of what you've heard with links to the podcasts featured will be available on the transmitter tab of socialbroadcasts.co.uk, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter and catch up on previous episodes, or just search for Transmitter where you get your podcasts. I'll be back with more audio, radio and podcast discoveries in February. And if you have any recommendations, please do drop me a line via the website. Until then, you should now have plenty of stories to keep you going through these long dark nights. So happy listening.